0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot.
0: Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Sweet Spot for iPhones. Sweet Spot is an app. It's a simple way to share your favorite experiences, your road trips, your vacation spots, your museums, bars, restaurants, you name it. You can use the app to follow friends, family, your favorite artists, your favorite chefs, your favorite musicians, writers, whatever. And then when you build your own curations, you can pull in photos from your Instagram, your Facebook, you can pull in locations from Google Maps, and then you use tags and text to tell your story and then once that's done you share your curations to facebook twitter tumblr pinterest google plus you name it sweet spot is a little bit different from other apps in that it wants you to be really thoughtful it wants you to connect places to places and moments to moments also one more thing it's free you can download sweet spot for iphone right now on the app store this is an app you can download it go and get it oh my god Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a form of entertainment. This is recorded with a home computer. How are you today? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, as usual, sitting here uh, in the home office, talking into this microphone. My guest today is Wendy C. Ortiz. Uh, very excited to have her here and uh, very excited to get to shine a light on her new memoir, Excavation. It's available now from Future Tense Books, a great indie press. And uh, it's the official September selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, for those of you not aware, the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club. And uh, we pick a book a month. And then uh, I interview the authors of those books on this program. So you should sign up for the book club. It's very cheap. Uh, it's less than the cost of a book. And you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. If you're interested, go to the NervousBreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. So uh, before we get going with the interview, uh, I want to read some mail. I've been getting a lot of good mail lately. Uh, This first message comes from a listener named Brent who writes, Hey Brad, simple thing, and I know that this is something a lot of smart, sensitive, considerate people still do, among whom I count you, but it was really jarring to hear you call the NFL, quote, retarded in your monologue for episode 311. I'm not going to get on a high horse and tell you not to say it in your personal life, but I think you're better than saying retarded in a derogatory way on the show. I think your listeners hold you to a higher standard than that. Signed, Brent. So, uh, you know, I think you're right. I think I shouldn't have said it. Uh, And uh, I apologize. I think the culture is changing. So, you know, I say that, uh, I also have, I have a mentally retarded uncle or mentally disabled. Um, doesn't bother me at all. When I hear people say the word retarded in casual conversation, I don't get offended, but if someone were to call him a retard in a mean spirited way, that would bother me. So it's a complicated thing. You know, it's like that line between, uh, sensitivity and political, you know, political correctness and, uh, and trying to, you know, it can be used in humor, you know, there's all these different ways. And sometimes it just can be tricky to figure out where the line is. But I think the culture is changing. And so I look backwards, like I think part of my calculus with this particular word is looking backwards and thinking of, you know, words that might have been used in casual conversation 50, 60, 70 years ago, that have fallen out of favor. And how when you hear people using them, you know, when you're watching old footage or old movies, or what have you, it's a little jarring and you think of those people as a little bit dumb. <laughs> so I, I sort of fear that, you know, in this particular instance, someone could listen to, to episode three eleven uh, 50 years from now, which is going to happen by the way, these podcasts will, uh, exist through the ages, but you know what I'm saying? My daughter someday down the road could listen to that and be like, dad, you know, so I apologize. And I'll try not to say that uh word. Uh, both on the show uh, or in my uh, life. I'm going to try to dial that one down. So thank you, Brent. I appreciate the letter. The next one comes from a listener named Lauren Euler. Uh, She wrote a thing over on Bookslut not too long ago, Bookslut being the uh, popular literary blog. And she mentioned the show uh, in a somewhat critical uh, way. And I I retweeted a link to that particular piece, which I do. And I want to clarify this for a moment because... Uh, you know, if you don't follow me on Twitter, you're not aware. I've always felt like it's sort of cheating to only retweet things or post links to things that are laudatory, positive, which is how a lot of people use, uh, you know, social media for promotional purposes. I think you should post links to everything good, bad, and ugly. So that's what I did. And, uh, after that, we had a little email exchange, Lauren and I did, and uh, she emailed me. Uh, At length to elaborate on her comments. So I figured I would read uh, most of her letter. Okay. So here goes. Uh, Excuse me. Hi, hi, hi. (laughs) That's how she started her email. Hi, hi, hi. I'm tempted to launch into some pseudo-apologetic preamble about criticizing you about how I debated with myself about whether I should say anything negative about the podcast on Book Slut because of the noted sentimental attachment I have for the show. But then... I was like, fuck it. If I can't stand people being lamely nice on the internet, then I must be the change I wish to see on the internet. But I'm just going to let that discussion of the temptation to pseudo-apologize sort of count as the pseudo-apology and then say, I think it's in the interviews. And I'll, I'll break in here. What she means is uh, she thinks that I talk about myself too much in the interviews. This was one of her criticisms. Uh, I noticed that maybe your monologues have gotten shorter recently. I started skipping them, and maybe that says something to you, though I usually skip podcast monologues because I don't really care. But in the interviews, it seems like you're constantly bringing up the same anecdotes or autobiographical tidbits in a way that makes me think, oh my God, Brad Listy! we know you hiked the Appalachian (laughs) Appalachian Trail. We know you went to school in Boulder. We know you had a traumatizing move at an impressionable pubescent age from one Midwestern state to another, similar Midwestern state. We know you sort of wish you were bipolar. I mean, like, do I really wish that I were bipolar? I think I wish that I had uh mania that I could like, you know, that I was hyperactive just so I could be more productive. But of course that's a myth. So she continues. Uh, I mean, like, you know, it's horrible and difficult, but wouldn't manic episodes. be Okay. So yeah, so she, she just said what I was talking about, um, which I think maybe proves her point. So uh, I'm thinking about the interview in particular, She writes uh, the interview with Brittany Sonnenberg, whose whole thing is about her childhood characterized by international relocations that were both causes and effects of trauma. Like she's a tall, tall, redheaded person playing on a basketball team in Singapore, where her sister later died of a rare and undetected and thus completely unexpected heart condition. And you talked about how much you hated moving to Indiana for like minutes (laughs) or what seemed like uh, a lot longer than establishing a connection length. So I'm going to pause here for a second just to try to like respond a little bit to this first chunk. Um, You know, I, I, again, I sort of agree. Like I can't tell you how many times I cringe internally or even externally as I'm doing the show or I'm talking to somebody, uh, whether it's the monologue or the interview, and I bring up the same stuff again. And uh, I think it's sort of, but it's inevitable. If you go autobiographical in a show like this and you do as many shows as I do, you know, I'm only so interesting. There's only so many things that happen to a person. The same things are bound to come up. The way that we talk about ourselves is usually, you know, or the narrative we build, you know, in our minds about ourselves is usually uh, marked by several key things, key experiences or what have you. So I'm aware of that. And uh, I do have an aversion to the monologues too. I feel, I, I you know, I go back and forth about whether or not they're even necessary. But then I hear from people who tell me it's their favorite part of the show a lot, which mystifies me. And, you know, when I think about other uh, radio shows out there or podcasts out there that work in an autobiographical vein where the host or the, you know, whoever is uh, talking about themselves in addition to talking to other people, there's lots of repetition like I think about uh Howard Stern, just to give a prominent example. How many times have I heard him talk about how small his penis is? How many times have I heard him talk about his germophobia and his uh awkwardness in social situations? But you know it doesn't bother me that much. It's who he is, and I guess this is who i am and and you know I think that you know doing all this autobiographical stuff in the context of an interview is sometimes, uh, you know, most of the time I think is an attempt at empathy and maybe it's a nervous tick, particularly when I'm talking to somebody who seems uh, shy or who's telling me about stuff that's difficult emotionally. I might be trying to relate in an effort to, uh, connect, you know, and then, you know, sometimes you ramble as a human being. So I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. Other than like, I, I sort of agree and I'll, uh, I'll try not to keep doing it. <laughs> so the rest of Lauren's letter reads, to be fair, my sensitivity to this might have something to do with me having listened to the podcast fairly continuously, often one or two episodes a day for a few months. And then parenthetically, she says I was walking twin babies in a stroller in the snow for low pay, which would create a sense of familiarity with your biography that someone who listens only occasionally would not have the repetition of certain auto- autobiographical themes of yours, or rather the increased repetition uh, you know, of autobiographical themes that I've noticed of late is more obvious if you're listening regularly. But after a while, your interviews stopped feeling like they were about ahem, other people, and felt more like they were about what you could use other people to say about yourself. I think we hold interviewers to different standards than we hold interviewees because their express purpose is to give other people attention. It doesn't really matter how interesting the interview is, the interviewer is what matters is his ability to draw the interesting out of others. And especially when the interviewer does a lot of interviews and repeats the same, uh, theoretically interesting information to every interviewee, this disconnect between the theory of the interview and the practice of the interview is annoying, especially I think in an audio interview. So Jesus, I feel dissected and, uh, filleted, but you know, uh, what, do, what do I say about this here? I think, uh, You know, I think I can't help but repeat what I just said earlier. It's just about trying to connect. And, uh, fuck man. (laughs) I I agree. I feel, I feel exactly like you do about myself. And then Lauren uh, finishes by saying, you seem to talk much less about yourself when you're talking to famous people or to people who seem like they're able to hold their own enough to steer the conversation in the direction of what's interesting These are always the interviews I like better and the people I sort of think will become famous ones later. It's hard. I'm not going to be like maybe you should interview fewer boring people because boring people abound in the publishing industry and their lameness doesn't necessarily translate to their books. And part of the point of the podcast is to grant attention to a variety of books and writers. But I think it's the interviewer's responsibility if he wants to be good at his job to stave off as much of the boring as he can. And, uh, here, all I would add is that that's certainly what I'm trying to do week in and week out for you, the listener, uh, Lauren's letter concludes. Anyway, I really do appreciate the podcast and I know you waver or were wavering about why you do it or if you should be doing it and whether it is your quote thing, what is your quote thing? And I'm not going to say anything about that because I just overreached significantly correspondence being, I think different from interviews, but I agree with what a lot of people said about it being a huge and great contribution to the quote conversation. And I do hope it doesn't start sucking signed Lauren. So thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate you listening and I appreciate the, uh, cons- like, you know, the really deeply considered feedback and criticism. Uh, it hurts, <laughs> but only because I think you're right, you know, in a lot of cases. And, uh, you know, it's just doing the best I can twice a week, talking to complete strangers for an hour at a time. And, uh, it is a podcast, you know, I think that if you want an interviewer who doesn't work personally and who's, you know, that might mean that your taste, uh, you know, veers more towards like NPR traditional terrestrial radio format with the, uh, the jazz background, you know, the jazz music in the background. So, you know, What else can I add? I think that I often have said on this program that I tend to agree with my critics. So in responding to your criticism about me repeating myself, I'm repeating myself. It's an, it's unavoidable. I basically only have 10 things that I can say. <laughs> and, uh, apparently you've heard them all. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow My guest once again is Wendy C. Ortiz. Uh, let's get going with her and with uh, the conversation I had with her. It was great to have her here. She was in the home studio. I'm very excited about uh, her book. You know, she was a, a contributor to The Nervous Breakdown. I think that's part of how this book came into existence. Uh, her publisher read her on the site and then uh, offered to offered publish her book. And lo and behold, it is now here. It is called Excavation. It is a memoir. It is available now from future tense books. Here she is, folks. This is Wendy C. Ortiz, and her book one more time is called Excavation. Okay, so this is the thing. Whenever I've had psychotherapists or people who work in a counseling capacity on this show before, and I find it somewhat intimidating as the interviewer talking to somebody who interviews for a living and also somebody who's like uh, adept at like psychology and, you know, you sort of know the tricks Do you know what I'm saying? And I think it's kind of weird, maybe for you to be on the other side of the
1: yeah. That is, it is, it is kind of weird because I don't really have clients asking me very many questions. I mean, some do, but it's definitely not like an interrogation. And you know, I don't know. I kind of approach working with clients the same way that I approach working just or just being with people. Like I'm curious. I'm curious about people, so I have questions. Yes. So you might be really good at it.
0: Okay. I'm you just know, very just, curious. It's just,
1: it's just like how you ask the question. <laughs> right. I think that's important.
0: Yeah. I just, I feel like there's like some sort of like, you know, there is a, 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 a mental chess aspect to therapy where yeah. like as the therapist, you have to sort of be a move or two ahead. Right. Is that, does that analogy I, hold?
1: That's probably true for some therapists, but I, I really try to stay in the moment. Yeah. And not try to get two steps ahead because it might mean that I'm assuming something that is totally incorrect.
0: That's a good point. So. that's a good point. And you know, like, uh, it's, a, it's a profession that I'm fascinated with because, uh, it's not, I mean, it's, uh, I'm not a therapist obviously, but like there is like a similar thing. You're sitting there talking to somebody mm-hmm. that you don't know. Well, yes. usually uh, that's my, you know, and they're mm-hmm. telling you things and, uh, usually uh, hopefully it gets interesting and personal because yeah. that means it's a good conversation. Um, as a therapist, when you're trying to help people suss out, uh, whatever it is, dysfunction, pain, Mm
2: -hmm. problems, Mm -hmm.
0: helping them untangle some sort of interior knot, you have to be a really good listener. Yes. And like you have to sort of suspend judgment. Yes. That's what you're talking about. Absolutely.
1: Suspending judgment, um, being totally present. It can be so hard to do sometimes to just like, you know, if you have all this other stuff going on in your life and then you're sitting across from somebody and to just be present with them. And like stay there.
0: And not get caught up in that. Cause I think, too, like when somebody's like divulging pain, um, you know, that gives off a certain negative emotional charge. Mm-hmm. And as a therapist, it can be, I think negative emotional charges are contagious.
2: Hmm.
0: Like, you know, when someone's feeling really angry, that anger can be contagious. Yeah. When someone's in a really negative, depressed state, if you're with them and they're like a friend of yours, you walk away from them like ugh.
1: Right, but you know it's interesting because in the therapy room, I think that it can be really powerful for the person who's experiencing that to see it reflected in the person listening to the story.
0: Like empathy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And if I, if somebody is telling me something that's really painful and I start to tear up, I've really had to teach myself to let that happen and not try to cut it off because out in the world, I might actually just try to cut it off. I don't want to cry in public. Like right. that's my thing. I do. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. It's yeah. like, and it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable. But in the room, I actually feel like if they see me having a response, that could be really meaningful for them. And but
0: but like an empathetic response, not like you bring in your own stuff. Up. Right. Like, oh, yeah. No, oh, by not the my way. No, no. <laughs> I totally get it. Stuff. You should hear about my, you know, you can't do that. No. That would be unprofessional. No. no. Okay. So, um but I feel like, uh, like, not unlike uh, being a professor. There are certain professions that I feel like have a more natural symbiosis with the writing life. Mm-hmm. And I feel yes. like therapy, um, counseling, that yeah. kind of stuff absolutely. seems like it could be of a piece with writing. Totally. Interior and exploration.
1: Absolutely. And that's exactly why I got into this in the first place. It was like, oh, this could actually feed my writing. And I think that the type of writing that I do will actually feed how I work as a therapist. So it seemed perfect.
0: Okay. And then like, is there any uh, ethical boundary that you have to draw in terms of making sure that you're not, I mean, can you uh, take something that you've heard from somebody in therapy and then twist it a little bit and put it into fiction with no. that?
1: I, I would never feel comfortable doing that ever, okay. ever. I have like, I have pretty serious boundaries when it comes to my clients. So that would absolutely never happen. Right. I, like I would never even like come close to doing it just for fear of like crossing the line. It just, it wouldn't work for me.
2: And then
0: what's the goal? Like when you talk to somebody who, like you have a patient who's dealing with something, I mean, you said marriage and family. So you're dealing yeah. with like a spousal.
1: Well, that's just like the term that, that's the California title. But you, you help like heal but, a marriage? Um, I've seen couples um, and, you know, it depends on their goals. Like I don't have a goal they come in and they tell me what they want. And sometimes what they tell me that they want is actually a little different yeah. based on what they show me and how they are in the world. So I kind of have to help figure out what the goals are and how we're going to work towards those goals. But they're never my goals. It's, you know, whatever they come in
2: with.
0: And so like object, like from an objective standpoint, meaning like what the, what the objective is, like have you, I mean, it's got to be satisfying if you help a couple reconcile. Have you done that before?
1: I have not done that before. Couples are really the hardest ones for me to Doesn't, work with. They're the ones that it's like usually couples are seeking counseling when things are really, really bad. Bad, yeah. Um which I don't recommend. It's like, you know, maybe go into counseling earlier than that. But so there's that, a I sti- I feel like there's a stigma. There's, there's a, stigma, a lot of fear. Yes. There's a
0: lot of fear, there's sure. a there's a cost element.
1: Oh, of course. Is it
0: does insurance cover that kind of thing?
1: I think so. I actually don't know for sure, but yeah, yeah, I would prob- hope. Yeah, I would hope so But I could too. I could
0: imagine it not, like you know. Yeah,
1: I mean, I know the stigma. I remember when I was like, "Oh, you know, the couple that I'm in has to go to therapy." And I actually felt the stigma of like, "Oh, we need therapy." <laughs> okay, now I know how some people feel about this because on my own as an individual, I don't feel like there's a stigma about me going to therapy. Right. But for some reason as a couple, it felt a little bit different.
0: Yeah, well it's like you know, it's, it's painful to admit that like you need help. Yeah. And like, that, you, you need to work on something? Yeah. But, you know, I think that there, there can be like a genuine catharsis. I think that um, whether it's an individual or a couple, uh, you know, if, especially if you get in there before the thing metastasizes and gets yes. really serious, yes. it can be really effective. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I, I imagine it must be rewarding to help people. Yeah. Especially when you can see tangible results.
1: Definitely. And I've experienced that with individuals more so than couples.
0: Couples are so fucked up. <laughs> 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 so, but I mean... We were talking about this before we came on the air. Um, you know, you, you look at people, and I think anybody who lives long enough and knows enough people who get married or have serious relationships, um, there's always more than meets the eye in a, in a couple. And in a relationship uh, that's intimate.
1: Absolutely. Where
0: people have been together a long time, you know, like they, there's a presentation in public, there's a yes. presentation in social situations, and then there's what goes on behind closed doors.
2: Absolutely.
0: And, um, you know, I'm married. It's difficult.
1: Mm-hmm. How long have you been married?
0: Uh, we have been married seven years. Yeah, okay. So you know, and I think that, um, I don't know. I, I guess when it comes to relationships of any kind, you know, friendships, this family relationships, mm-hmm. like dealing with other
2: people. Yes, <laughs> yes. The name of the show. Yes, it's difficult. Uh huh. Oh, absolutely. Communication. It's like I'm like
1: exponentially more complicated when you introduce somebody else yes. into it.
0: But it's like you know, I, I find myself thinking. Uh, in the context of like my own bullshit, you know, like trying to uh, deal with personal expectations, feeling like I'm doing a good job of being a dad and a husband, trying to manage anger, trying to make sure that I'm like uh, what it comes down to for me is language so much of the time, which I'm, you know, I'm trying to dovetail this back into writing. Somehow. <laughs> but, you know, when you're dealing with a relationship, whether it's an intimate uh, marriage, you know, relationship or it's a friendship of some kind or it's familial the use of words matters so greatly and the misuse of words totally can destroy like a very close bond. Right. Just like that. Yes. That's crazy to me. Yes. So it's like, I find myself very fixated on language choice on tone. Yeah. You know, all these things that, you know, we sort of fixate on in the writing work. Right. And, uh, and also
1: what doesn't get said, because, you know, that's also something that you can feel sometimes when you're with other people, like that there's something that's being omitted that, or something that you like notice. You just feel something is missing from the conversation. Yeah. You don't know what it is. Like and
0: subterranean rage. Maybe, like repressed. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But no, it's like uh, this is the thing, too. Maybe you can speak to this because I think a lot of people deal with this. Uh, you feel anger or frustration in, uh, in, in, in an exchange mm-hmm. with somebody and, you know, in less disciplined moments, you might, uh, act on that and you mm-hmm. might speak and have word choice and, you yes. know, tonal problems that yes. lead to conflict and the exacerbation of the problem. Yes. Um, and so you, you wind up feeling shitty. Yes. It this might be is
1: like how I lived some, some of my twenties. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I think we all did yes. that we're human beings. So You do that and it feels real good coming out. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the hangover afterwards and the guilt and you feel like shit and Mm -hmm. you're like, I'm an asshole and you hate it. Yeah. And then it's like, how do you repair that? So if somebody is, uh, let's say I'm your patient just Mm -hmm. to play. (laughs) Let's do this for a second. Let's say I'm your patient. I'm pissed off and I'm, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm pissed off and I'm really frustrated and I know that if I speak, it's not going to come out properly. What do you advise?
1: So you haven't spoken out yet. No. Oh, so we would just role play it a little bit. Okay. I'd be like, oh, but first I'd really want to know, like, what could you, what would you want to say that you really don't think you could say? So we'll get all of that out of the way. Like, what is it that you really want to say? Yeah. But wouldn't go over well at all. Right. So let's get that out of the way. And then we can strategize how to say, like, how to get your feelings across without, you know, fucking up the entire relationship. Gently. Yeah.
2: Gently.
0: Yeah. And it's like when that, when that anger is like at the surface or whatever it is, the frustration, like there's no way to fake it. It's like, right. you, you can't like force a smile and like, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like that doesn't work either. No. I don't, I think you almost need, like, I think human beings do not like take timeouts.
2: Right. Enough. You know. almost need to just it's be like, true.
0: I'm going to go for a walk.
2: Absolutely. Like
0: not in like a dickish, like I'm nope. not talking to you way, but nope. just like, I need to go like take a walk or Absolutely. I need to, people don't do that. Nope. You know? And like you look around and, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like people, uh, we were, you know, I don't want to get too into what we were talking about before we came in the air <laughs> okay. because internet rage has been well addressed on this yep. program and elsewhere. But you know, I feel like people have anger problems. Yes. You know, yes. people are upset. Yeah. About life. And it's deep. <laughs> I'm not upset. I feel good. Your presence <laughs> is medicinal. So um, grew up in Los Angeles, grew up in North Hollywood, yeah. like not like the Los Angeles of the popular imagination.
1: No, no. For me, like, like coming over to this side was always a really big deal. Like taking a bus over the hill into Hollywood, you was know, like, as a teenager was like, ooh.
0: yeah. Did <laughs> so. you feel, I mean, did you feel a sense of like, that's where the good shit's happening?
1: Well, it was definitely, like, where the strange shit was happening. I was like, ooh, Venice Beach and Hollywood, you know, very different from the San Fernando Valley, for
2: sure.
0: Right. Yeah. And so, but, I mean, like, there always there is that kind of, like, for people who don't know Los Angeles uh, all that well, you have the valley and then you have the basin. Is that the proper way to put it?
2: I guess. The L.A.
0: basin? Yeah. Like, Los Angeles proper, and then you yeah. go over the hills into the valley. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. valley is about 10 degrees hotter yep. or more at yeah. all times. doesn't get the ocean breezes. No. Um, and you know, socioeconomically is a little bit lower.
1: Yeah, maybe. So is there, I mean. Yeah, though the closer it's, you get to the hill, then it's like, then it's, it starts to go up.
0: Though it's all, you know, pretty, it's all, it's all expensive at yeah, this point. that's true. It's so, true. but did you feel that though? Did you feel that like that differentiating feeling or like we live in the valley, we should live in the city? Or, no, no, I
1: was, no, like growing up, I was like vaguely aware of all of this stuff here, like on this side of the hill. Um. I didn't really become aware of it until I was, like, 14 and was riding buses by myself and could come over here. My my grandmother lived in East L.A., though, so I would get, like, a taste of a totally different part of Los Angeles growing up. You know, weekly visits to my grandmother, taking freeways that, you know, we didn't normally take. And so I got that perspective of Los Angeles, but it was pretty limited. It was very limited to the Valley and, like, East L.A., Growing okay. up until I was fourteen,
0: and then you started. So like, uh, you know, I have a daughter, so I'm like projecting. At fourteen, <laughs> you're riding buses.
1: I know it's really hard to imagine And L.A. buses. Know, you know, know, they can be I knew, sketchy. This is back when it was the RTD before the MTA, and it was like. All my friends and I did it. We rode the buses to school. You know, I walked from my house to the bus stop, which wasn't very far, and I took buses to school. And I, you know, and of course, I would take advantage of situations. And, sure, you know, like as kids do, side trip to the Sherman Oaks Galleria, and, you know, stuff like that.
2: Edgy
0: <laughs> went to the limited or <laughs> <Hey>, whatever. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. And then you know, but happy childhood. I mean, you've written about it some yeah. on the nervous breakdown. So I have some. I, I know of some times or experiences that like were more dramatic than sure, others. Sure. But you know, overall, was it a,
1: a You know, I never really think about it as like sort of overall, but I mean, there was happiness and then there was like intense sadness. I mean, it was all it was just all together. It was all jumbled up together. So
0: let's talk about the intense sadness. <laughs> <laughs> like what was difficult?
1: Um what was difficult was living with people who were functioning alcoholics. I mean, that's difficult. Um, feeling like I was the adult among them a lot I, of time. When
0: it comes to addiction, I feel like functioning addicts, it's almost worse to me yeah, I than see, people I who see, bottom. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like there's something like even because I've lost friends. I've seen people go down yeah. very dark roads with that stuff. And it's like, you know, I almost feel like it's, it's better to hit bottom you know, mm-hmm. however messy it might right. be. Huh. Then to be able like the people who can actually like sustain, like keep a job even right. though they're loaded, like every night after work, like th- th- it's exhausting. Mm-hmm you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it yeah. I guess it just, it lasts longer, but you know, eventually it's going to get you. Right. You know?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're not going to be functioning forever. Right. Usually. So.
0: And both of your parents were functioning? Both of
1: my parents, um, you know, they were like, they were early drinkers together. So I think that it just kind of sustained. That was the their, part yeah. Part of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, I was an only child, so I felt like I was responsible for a lot of stuff from an early age. And I think that in many ways that has served me as I've gotten older, but certainly it's not any way that, you know, you hope that children are growing up.
0: Like, like were you paying the bills? Like, no, but I remember, books? no,
1: but I do remember like sometimes when bills would come in the mail, I would make sure that I put them somewhere where they would be noticed because I was a little bit like, I don't know if I trust these people. Ugh. So that
0: grows you up Yeah. No, too fast.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: So you, I mean, and you took that on, like you had like more of an adult bearing at a younger age. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely one of those kids that like seemed to have my shit together. I'm also really introverted and like a reader. It's weird though, because it's like, actually when I'm thinking now about the interview um, with David Connerly, nom, and he was talking about um, being obnoxious and I had pictured him as maybe more of an introvert. Now I kind of, as I'm talking about this or thinking about this, I'm thinking like I was very introverted, but I could also be really obnoxious too. And there was this like need for attention. And for me, it was more like I wasn't getting enough attention at home. So I was going to try and do some crazy shit elsewhere. But it was always this friction of like, I want to be introverted, but I also want some attention. So that friction was always there.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like I feel I feel like with writers though, that's often the case, at least in some form. Uh, I've heard it said before that writers are like private exhibitionists. (laughs) You know, you you get to be an exhibitionist on the page. You get to do all act out all these things, but it's all done in this really contained, closed off way. It's not public. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I guess you. It's
1: super weird to have a memoir out there. I have to say, like, just this weekend. This is like it may seem really weird that I'm saying this. Like it just occurred to me, but I took a copy of my book with me. I went to the desert for a couple of nights, and I took a copy of the book with me because sometimes I have like people ask me things and they have to reference it. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to bring it with me. And occasionally, I would open it up, and I would read something, and I would be like, oh my gosh,
0: this I don't
2: is public. That everybody <laughs> who's read
1: this knows this about me. Right. Whoa. Yeah. What the fuck did I do? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. So that's like the the private exhibition. It's like, yeah, there's a friction there. Yeah. And it's slightly uncomfortable. It's sometimes a little bit like, oh, but it's okay that it's out in the world. And like people are having positive responses to it. So it's okay.
0: Well, and this and- is the thing I always say because I have people who will resist me or, or they're like, they're worried about coming on the show. Like, I don't want to talk about myself or. I just don't do well in these conversations, it, it, you know. Or you could say I don't want to write about myself. It's like you know what. Part of me gets it. I, I you know have empathy, understand that not everybody sees things like you do. But part of me is like, it doesn't matter.
2: Hmm. Like,
0: get over yourself. Hmm. You know what I'm saying like mm. people are going to listen yeah but like we're all busy people no one's going to be sitting <laughs> no one's going to be sitting there holding right. your book going I can't believe she's It's you. true. We're just relieved. It's absolutely true. We're relieved to have people telling the truth. Mm-hmm. We need this in our lives. You're not that important individually neither am I. Yeah. Just try to be honest. Write your stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's all going to go up in a giant explosion someday. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Do You, get what, do you yes, get what I'm saying? Absolutely. I feel like I feel like re- that kind of reticence can be indicative of excessive self-importance sometimes, and oh, I right. and I myself have been reticent in that way, uh-huh. where you're like, I don't want to divulge this, and you know, at the same time, I get that, like, you know, not everybody likes to share everything, right. and some people want privacy, and right. that has to be respected too. But like, I I obviously am a, more of the camp that like the world needs more transparency. Yeah, you know. More, I wish for that: I do too. It would make it, it's a great relief to me, yeah like, you know, so to get back to your family stuff, growing up, um, you know we talked about the friction or the tension between introversion and exhibitionism and mm-hmm. wanting attention. but you know one of the other things that strikes me is that when you have uh, an alcoholic in the family, particularly a parent, or in your case, both parents, mm-hmm. um, you know a lot of times at least one of the kids in the family, mm-hmm. in your case you're an only, mm-hmm. um, will be kind of like the family hero. Like, that's a dynamic uh-huh. that sort of comes out, like an achiever
1: right. got oh, their shit together. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. That was you. Oh, absolutely. So
0: you <laughs> yeah. never, but you never got into, like, booze and drugs or had a problem with it yourself?
1: Um, You know, I definitely have experimented and, you know, probably more, you know, somebody would say more than experimented for many years. Like, you know, adolescence, that was a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, but, you know, I don't know that I have the same kind of, um, personality or even, I mean, obviously I share genetics with my parents, but, um, I remember, um, the one time that I have done that I did crystal meth. Yeah. I remember it because I remember thinking, this is so good. I can never do this again. And I was like 16. Yeah. So the fact, like whenever I think about myself and my use of way it was like, thanks. (laughs) Of all the ones, of all the ones to be like, you know know. what? I probably...
0: That scares, me. I mean, as a parent. Yeah. And, you know, let me ask you this, because like, I, I sometimes feel like maybe drugs are playing themselves out to a degree in the same way that, like, cigarettes, at least in certain cultures and states, mm-hmm. have sort of played themselves out hmm. to a degree. Like, you know, like to use cigarettes as an example, like uh, 60, 70 years ago, you had professional athletes doing advertisements for right. cigarettes. Now, culturally, it's totally different. Yes. I feel like kids are a little bit hipper to like, oh, we shouldn't do that. That's stupid. I don't know about that. You don't?
1: That. I don't know. I mean, I feel like at this point, it's like pharmaceuticals now that, kids, well, that, that are, okay. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Yeah.
0: So like the drugs have changed. Yes. It's not the ecstasy and like, uh, you know, the, whatever was going around when we were younger, it's now like people are, it's like Adderall and Xanax yeah. and like mm-hmm. the, the, right. what do you call them? The, the licensed or, right. you know, FDA approved yeah. <laughs> yeah. drugs that are being abused to like disastrous effect. But yeah. like. Do you think that there's any chance that human beings could figure this out? I guess they're always going to want to get high. I
1: think humans always, always want to get high. I think that there's like a need for it. And I think that, you know, like in certain circumstances, I'm okay with that. You know? I am too. Like, like a
0: good bacchanal. Like a good, yeah. like, great, like a festival or like a, yeah. a release.
1: So, you know, when I was a teenager, what I would do is we had, you know, our health class. We had a health textbook. Yeah. And there was the chapter about drugs and I remember like somebody, you know, somebody would call me up and be like, "Hey, so and so has ecstasy at their house. Do you want to come over and let we'll go over there and take it." And I would look it up in my health textbook, like do my research, and then I'd be like, "All right, yeah." So I was <laughs> like, "I read about LSD before I did it. I read about everything before I did it because I wanted to like have an experience." Sure. And I wanted it to be, I guess, sort of conscious, although I wouldn't have called it that at the time.
0: No, but I get that. So that
1: was my approach. Yeah. You know, and.
0: But it wasn't that. No, that's a good. That's a smarter approach. First of all, having like at least some context for what you're yeah. doing, but then also, um, and I was kind of this way, like wanting to have an uh, an experience that was educational.
2: Yes. As opposed Mm
0: -hmm. to like medicinal or there for pain relief.
2: Oh, uh uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? I
0: think sometimes people are just like, I just want to numb out. Right. And I I guess that's always a component to getting high. But like for me, it was always like, I want this to teach me something.
2: Right. And
0: I don't think all of my friends were necessarily that way. And I could even annoy them sometimes because I'd be like the guy in the corner, (laughs) Stone, being like, you know, what do you guys think about? And they'd be like, shut the fuck (laughs) up, dude. You know, like we're watching Fletch. You know? (laughs) Oh, man. So, um, well, that's interesting. So you don't have, you don't have the bug. You didn't get the genetic no, thing or.
1: No. I mean, it's, sometimes I laugh at the fact that in my refrigerator, like, and this has been true for most of my adulthood, like there could be beer or wine and it. Like I forget about it. It's I never feel like compelled to like go have some. Yeah. Um, I certainly enjoy having drinks from time to time, but I don't feel like I'm anywhere close to what I saw growing yeah. up with my parents. Right. Nowhere near that.
0: You think you think uh, drugs have any kind of therapeutic effect? Like, could they be used in a therapy context? I do.
1: I do. I mean, I remember even when I was studying MDMA as, you know, like a uh, I did some research on it also when I was in college, um, but I Quote remember unquote, research. You no, know, it was like at that point <laughs> I was done with it. I had had a really bad experience, yeah. and so I was writing a research paper. On it is it, it is I'd a drug of a bad it is experience.
0: a drug of diminishing returns yeah. and brutal fucking hangovers. Totally,
2: totally like, awful.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I remember the last time I did it, and I was like, I'm done with this. Yeah, and I'm going to do this research paper, and I'm going to use myself as a subject. You know, like here's what happened, and um, yeah, it's. I remember reading at the time, though, that they were starting to do studies with people um, using MDMA in therapeutic contexts, and I can totally see how that would work because yeah, like, I know like what this. it's like when you have like the right dosage and everything. You do feel more uninhibited, and you can say a lot more, and there's something therapeutic about that
0: in yeah. certain circumstances. How many people in their college dorm room have been like, dude, we just need to get all <laughs> the world leaders together? <laughs> But I mean, at this point, at this point, fuck it. Let's try it. Right.
1: I'm ready. If it's like, you know, I want to be able to tell you how I really feel about you and I don't have any fear right now and I feel like you're going to receive it with tenderness and not like freak out on me. Sure. Then, you know, here we go.
0: Yeah. Let's do it. I'm all, I'm all for it. I think. And that's, I mean, that's controlled dosage, which is a big problem with a lot of these drugs. Like they're not the dosage, you know, the dosages vary. People don't know what they're taking. Um, but then it's also within like a therapeutic context. You have an objective, you, you know, you have like an overseer, you have somebody mm-hmm. there who's in yes. the therapist, isn't on drugs, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> you have a referee who can sit there and you have some water, you're hydrated. It's yes, good. You're yes. not like in the desert. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't had anything. You haven't yeah. had anything to eat or drink in like a week. <laughs> um, okay. So your childhood, you've written about this on the nervous breakdown and mm-hmm. I'd be remiss not to bring it up cause it's like a big part of your life and, uh, you know, the, the relationship that you had with Mm -hmm. your teacher, Mm -hmm. um, why don't you give like listeners just kind of like a, some broad context for what happened? So the
1: broad context is that, um, in junior high, um, I was 13 and, um, we had a teacher come to our school, just, you know, a new teacher, new to the profession as well. Um, and he initiated a sexual relationship with me, like within the first few months of arriving at our school.
0: Okay. And so pedophile grooming, like, is that what you would, <clears throat> is that it?
1: You know, I, I definitely, he's a sexual predator. That's for sure. Okay. And he's a, he's a sexual offender. Um, I think that there are really specific definitions of pedophilia and you could call it that. Um, right. but I think that there are actually people who would say, Oh no, he's not, a, he's not a, a pedophile. So I don't, I don't feel like I need to diagnose exactly what he was, except to say that he was a sexual predator and definitely a sex offender. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. And I want to, I want to continue the that narrative thread, but I, I do have to interrupt because I read something online recently that gave me pause mm-hmm. because there's nothing that, you know, we were talking about like a internet outrage before yeah. we came on the air and it's, you know, it's this big thing. Everyone's always reacting to whatever the story of the day is, but, um, So there's nothing like that's more naturally uh, reviled or uh, repulsive Repulsive. than Uh um, a pedophile. So I'm reading this essay online and basically the the argument or like this study was done that says that there could potentially be a genetic component because the question that comes up in my mind whenever I read about pedophiles is like, what? Like this compulsive behavior to go want to have sex with children. It's like, what the fuck is going on? But there are people who are pedophiles who know that they have this yes. urge yes. who know that it is also extraordinarily damaging yes. and they don't want to act on it. And so they reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that recontextualized it for me. I was like, Oh my God, like what if this is as genetically
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, not normal, but genetically coded uh, as uh, heterosexuality? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What if like some people are coded to yeah. be attracted to kids? I
1: have read, I, I, now that I think of it, like, the way that I read it was that it was like a chemical, it was a chemical imbalance. So, you know, very well could be genetic. Yeah. Um, But I have read about that. before. What a fucking curse.
0: Yeah. You know, and like, you know, there, and and then just that there is like a subset of these people who have come out and said, I have this. Yes. I don't want to act on it. Help me. Awful.
2: Yeah.
0: Imagine having that. That would suck. And like having that and having a conscience, you would just be like grossed out by yourself. That's intense. That's intense. So anyway, this guy's a predator, your teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, How did he initiate the relationship?
1: Um, So, you know, it started with like basic flirtation, you know, in class. And then eventually he gave me his phone number. I got it through another person. And that's, you know, I got it through another student. So I don't know what the context of that was like but he fed it through this. Yeah. Person? Okay. Yeah. So, um, and asked me to call him in the context of, um, I want to talk about the book you're writing because I was writing a book. And, um, so even then you were writing, I books. was writing a book then. Mm. Yeah. I still have it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's he's like, terrible. He's like, I'm going to give you more to write about. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Pretty much. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and that is actually, um, sort of like one of the hallmarks of the story is that, This was somebody who was uh, like an early, like cheerleader of my writing, very encouraging of my writing all the time. Totally was always like, you need to do this for the rest of your life. And then would turn around and say, you can't write anything down about us um, ever. So, okay. So, okay. But he gets your,
0: he gets his phone number to you. Mm -hmm. Tells you to call him. Yeah. You, you decide to yeah, call Yeah, so this
1: is a chapter in the book, actually. And yeah. it's, um, I call him, and probably for the first, you know, half an hour or so, it's, like, just flirty and fun, and we're just talking. But then eventually he tells me that he has a crush on me. And from that point, it just immediately turns sexual. And he starts saying things to me that I don't even understand at that age. How like, old were you? I was 14. No, yeah. at the time I was 13. Yeah, because, yeah, it was the beginning of the school year, so. Good God. Yeah, so, and I was a 13-year-old that was, like, reading Cosmopolitan, reading those things, but, like, I still didn't understand some of the things that he was saying.
0: I still don't understand. (laughs) I'm still reading Cosmopolitan, looking for answers.
1: (laughs) So, you know, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what was happening, but I knew that I was having feelings, like, oh, my God, what is this? Like, I knew it was out of the ordinary. Yeah. And totally, like, wrong, but that was appealing.
0: Sure. You're a kid and yeah. you know some of this guy's giving you attention. Yep. So then it escalates.
1: Then it escalates. I mean over basically we we had a phone like it was like all by phone. Basically
0: in today's times you would you would have been texting constantly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then there would have been like some good evidence. Yes. Um yeah, or computers, any of that, but none of that was there. It was like me and my princess telephone. So Wow. Um it was all by phone up until there was a there was one situation like in the spring the following year, um, right before I turned fourteen, where we it was like a post field trip sort of thing, um, where we got a little bit physical, but it was I could tell, and he also ended up saying that he wanted me to not be his student anymore before anything could happen, so we waited until the school year was over, and then. It, once then, you're once you're fourteen, once I'm I mean,
0: 14.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: right,
0: right? I just want you to be fourteen <laughs> right. before we progress. I don't feel right <laughs> yeah, about this. Right. Um, so uh, awkward first kid. I mean, I can't even imagine what that.
1: You know, it. It was all, yeah. It was all just bizarre to me. Like I had, I had fooled around with guys at that point, but not, not guys this old. And like, he had, he always acted as though he had this idea that I was much more experienced than I actually was. And I didn't tell him different. So I was just going by what little experience that I had and then trying to like act like an adult in this situation with him. And he sort of encouraged that he was like, you know, he treated me like an adult much of the time.
0: Oh. Which is which also is, a, something which is I appealing, wanted. yeah. It's yeah. appealing to. Uh, there's. No, I remember being a teenager. There was nothing better than being treated as an equal by an adult. Yes. Because like you just get you get. I really feel like this is actually something adults should do more of, to an extent. But you get talked down to a right. lot as a kid. Right. I mean, obviously, there's got to be a, a a clear line. Definitely. But sometimes it can be insulting. Yes. You're treated you could, like yeah, a second class condescending, citizen.
1: Condescending, yeah, all yeah. of that.
0: Um. So and then eventually this obviously ends. Um. Like how? But was the end game, or do you want to save that for people? I'm gonna, to read,
1: yeah, you should just read it. Read the
0: video <laughs> okay, folks. We set you up. Yes. <laughs> um. So, but you get out of that, go to college.
1: Yes. Yes. So I.
0: Not, not necessarily. I mean, for somebody who grew up with uh, two function, you know, functioning alcoholic parents. Yeah. Um went through this ordeal, Uh you know, it it wasn't necessarily a guarantee that you were going to make it to college statistically. Yeah.
1: Statistically. Sure. But I was, I was an overachiever. Yeah. So it was like, of course I'm going to go to college. Like that was never in question. Were your parents
0: pushing it? Were they, yes, my parents,
1: both of my parents had not gone to college and they were like, you are absolutely going to college. And I had like a trust fund with money to like, so that when it was time I would have money to go. And, um, but I, It took me a little while. Like, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I stuck around LA for like two more years doing community college and then moved to Olympia, Washington for Evergreen.
2: Why Olympia?
1: A friend of mine who um, was going to Hampshire College. Yeah. um, She was riding the rails, like, up and down the West Coast. And she had Riding the rails. That's so old school. I know. She was. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a hobo. awesome. Yeah, she was. Was it
0: Amtrak or she was, like, actually, like, train hopping? She was
1: train hopping. Oh, my God. Yeah. Even better. I know. And so she ended up somewhere near Olympia and found out about the school. I don't know how much time she spent there, but she came back and said, hey, there is a state school in Washington called Evergreen that's very much like Hampshire, but probably much more affordable. And maybe you should check it out. And at that point, I was already starting to become um, like, like my politics were starting to become more radicalized. Like to what?
0: To Like you're a lefty? Yeah. Okay. Oh, Communist? Yeah. Like, what's uh, what does radicalize mean?
1: Oh, at that time, I probably would have called myself a socialist. Okay. At that time, and so uh, the idea of Evergreen was really appealing to me because um, they had a program that I wanted to get right into called political economy and social change. Okay. And um, that was the program that I started in there, and then I did a lot of other stuff because you can pretty much do. Almost pottery. anything
2: Pottery.
0: <laughs> basket <laughs> weaving.
1: Right. That is the one that they always say, that bat, underwater basket weaving. Right. Yeah, you can't do that. There, but,
0: but, you know, there's something to be said for kind of a loosey-goosey liberal arts education, especially yeah. for people who don't quite know or don't quite, you know, if you're, if you're not a, like I always call people who become like doctors or lawyers, like that's a linear path. Mm-hmm. I say that it's not mm-hmm. it, uh, meant to denigrate. Right. It's almost almost like I say it with envy. Yeah, like oh, you just <laughs> jump through these hoops and then this happens and then you know. Right. But for people like us, it's like you know.
2: No,
1: when I started like becoming a therapist, like doing all of the hoop jumping, I was like, wow, I have never been on a career path before, and this is a trip. Like, yeah, this is I've just been how it goes. This weird spiral for a while, you know. Like, I'm still it's...
0: spiraling. <laughs> I need help. <laughs> wow. Um. So, and then you get into Olympia, your politics, ra- you know, radicalized. What's it? Is it like gloomy up there? I'm picturing oh. like heroin weather. Like, is it?
2: Yes.
1: It's super gloomy. There's not a lot of sun. There's a lot more rain there than there is in Seattle. Um, and that was really hard. I was going to say. but having grown up here, I was never sicker than when I lived in. You just got like a yeah, hacking cough. Yeah. And, and some... like everything is always wet or damp all the time. Oh. <laughs> Like it was horrible in yeah. that respect. But my first couple of years, actually, the weather was strangely good. And so I was kind of lulled by that. And I ended up staying there for eight years instead of the two years I needed to be there. Um, but it was because I had like found a community of people. And
0: what was the community?
1: It was mostly it was like a political community.
0: And like, what were you guys what were you guys stomping for?
1: Um, Everything. Uh. Everything. What was
0: your cause though? You had to have at least a few principal causes in there.
1: I was really into, um, like having access to abortion and in Olympia, there was only, when I first moved there, there was only one clinic that offered abortions. And then, um, when a second clinic tried to open up, like people came out, like operation rescue came out. And so I was involved in that. And then I actually worked at the first clinic for a while too. Um, that and also at the time, um, there were they were trying to pass uh, an anti affirmative action like statewide law, so I was really involved in trying to counteract that. And then it was like a lot of other stuff, like I was involved in the food co op, like I was on the board of directors, <laughs> <Hell yes. laughs> you know, shit like that. It was like, and I would go to meetings of just like you know, different like things that people like demonstrations people wanted to put on. I was like, I would go to meetings and I would help. And and then, of course, what spurred um, the this? anti-WTO stuff, too. What is,
0: where does this come from, you think?
1: Feeling a sense of injustice from, like, early on. Yeah. And, like, how, what do I do with this energy of, like,
0: like... Like you felt it personally as a child or something? Like yeah. discrimination or a sense of being... I
1: felt a sense... I think that, like, when I think about it, and I've tried to write about it and I think I even wrote about it a little bit in Excavation just this sense of um, nobody is really paying that much attention to you so you really have to do something big to to get people to notice Um, and having like a sense of injustice about all of the shit that happens in the world and like I want to be able to do something even if it's something small to change it.
0: No, that's admirable Um, because most people just bitch on Twitter. Yeah. And then they like, you know, when right. they retweet something and they're like, yeah, I did. Right. You know, but it's like, you got your hands dirty.
1: But it's also, it's really, it's hard work to be involved in like groups. I mean, you know, like what we were saying earlier, it's like, it gets more complicated the more people that you add. And Organi-
0: so- Organizing political action yes. is, that's the hard part. Yes. It's like, it's like, what's the old saying? If all the good people, if all the, if all the sane people could just get together and actually organize themselves, we'd be a lot better off. But we are just, right. it's like that. Part of it is eludes us.
1: Right. And that's why I think that I eventually got into working, like wanting to be a therapist, because I started realizing that a lot of times the groups would implode because yep. of people's shit. Like everything that we were fighting against yeah. out in the big world, we were fighting like on a micro level. In our own groups. Yeah. And after that happened many times, like I started seeing, you know, the sexism, the racism, all that shit happening in our small groups where we're trying to fight that stuff at a bigger level. Right. I got disenchanted and started feeling like, wow, if people could come to these groups already having worked on some of their shit on their own, (laughs) then we'd get somewhere. Yes. And working one on one with clients kind of helps in my mind. It helps, you know, make that happen.
0: You're like, so, like, once you've helped somebody out, like, once you've sort of gotten them into the clear, then you, uh, then you can be like, hey, there's this food co-op. <laughs> they need a new. They need somebody on the board of directors. I think you're ready. You could be a recruiter. <laughs> it's complicated, people. You know, people. Are, it's complicated, and uh, you get people in a group, and that group dynamic thing gets complicated. Yes. There's nothing more uh, inspiring to me than like a healthy group of people yeah. that functions, uh, you know, it's in some rare. kind of harmony, it's pretty rare, yeah. but like trying to get to that level of harmony. Like, uh, I read somewhere once that like, you know, when you talk about you know, like world changing people, you know, you think back in like great, like uh, spiritual leaders or mm-hmm. traditions or whatever, you have these people who are like sort of like fulcrums or pivot points. Yes. The world is obviously a lot bigger in terms of population. It's a lot smaller in other ways, but you know, Humanity is a much bigger beast than it was 3,000 years ago by exponents. So you start to think about, like, what is it going to take to actually affect radical change in a meaningful way? Mm -hmm. And it strikes me, uh, you know, I read this and it struck me as true, is that it's probably going to be a group
2: Mm -hmm.
0: next time around. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be some, like, man or woman with, like, a lot of good ideas. It's going to be, like, a really effective group of people. yeah. And I don't know who it'll be. God, it's so. Should hard we start to... one? <laughs> I don't think you know. I don't think I'm ready. But you know, maybe if I talk, to you, I can go into therapy it's with been, you.
1: And... It's been really hard for me to approach groups after many of those experiences. Yeah. And then, like in in my studies for psychology, like I had to be in a group therapy class, and the class was us doing group therapy with each other. And that was a reminder of like, oh yeah, this is really complicated to just like bring a random group of people together and then ask them to work together a certain way. It's, it can you know, be I was, really, I was in really a meeting
0: hard. yesterday. I had a meeting, um, kind of a creative meeting. There were like six people at the table. Mm-hmm. I was exhausted yeah. when it was over with. And yeah. it was about like, you know, it wasn't about anything like earth shattering emotional human problems. It was about creative work. <laughs> And I was sitting there in this conference room at this table, just like, and by the end of it, like I just, you know what I do in those situations? Mm. I sort of shut down. Yes, I'll be the silent guy. Yep, I can't. This is so chaos. That's
1: Totally, what I do as is that well. the
0: is that what a, as a doctor would you advocate that for me? Is that or is that <laughs> like uh, unhealthy repression and a turning my you know.
1: No, you do what you've got to do in those situations, you know, if shutting shutting down is a coping mechanism. Well, so maybe it's protecting you.
0: Or, or like what can I add? You know, right. this is confusing. I feel like if I just take myself out of it, then it's like one less.
1: Right, but then there's always that like you wonder if somebody's going to be like, "Well, why didn't you say anything?" Or they
0: or maybe I'm ceding control to people who are uh, right. have like worse ideas than I do. <laughs> Not saying that's the case, but you know. <laughs> It can be tough. They're just, you know, that many cooks in the kitchen. The yes. more cooks in the kitchen, the more human dynamic is at play.
2: Right. The
0: harder it is for communication to be effective, mm-hmm. for people to not say things that offend one another. Yeah. People are touchy. Yeah. You can, you yeah. know, you can hurt somebody's feelings and you don't even realize that it happened. Yeah. Um, you know, we're a complicated animal. Yes, very. <laughs> so, okay. So Olympia, um, you're up there, you're political, uh, you know, you had your 20s. Yeah. uh Um, And then the whole time you're writing.
1: The whole time I was writing, I was writing fiction and poetry and um, it took me like a couple of years of going back and forth with myself before I decided like, okay, I guess it would be okay to, to try doing an MFA program because there was a part of me that was like, you don't need a fucking MFA program. Right. Um, there's
0: still a part of me that says that and, yeah. I, and I have one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, same here. It's like, yeah.
1: I still like, you know, and also now when people ask me about like, do you think I should get an MFA? I'm like, if it's paid for, don't, right. don't, uh, don't or, get or in debt for it. Yes,
0: exactly. That's kind of the advice that I give. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, um, but I finally decided that I would do that and that, um, is sort of part of the reason I guess I end up, there was a bigger reason why I ended up leaving Olympia, but, What's the bigger uh, reason? I broke up with my boyfriend. I was like, I'm ready to go back to LA. I knew that I wanted to come back to LA eventually because I love it here. This is my home. So, um, but I started a low res program that was in LA. So I was already coming out here and like getting tastes of it, and like would stay in Venice Beach at like a hostel with my friends. The sun is shining. Yeah, and I just you know it was like, oh yeah, I could move back. I could definitely do this. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. I think yeah. I was already living here when I finished. Like I'd been living here again for about six months before, and then I finished my MFA. And you've been here ever since. Yeah.
0: And the books, but the book uh, I, I want to say I, I Twitter remember this. Like, didn't you tweet about how it took you like about fourteen years? Yeah. To write the yes. Okay, because you have yes. two books this year. Yes. You're double publishing this year. Yes. It seems to be a trend. I feel like this is happening more. <laughs> It's like, but it's not it's, a bad way to debut.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't really choose it this way. It was like, this is just how it kind of played out. So, right. um, as
0: if people didn't get enough of you the first time around, here's another <laughs> book. I want you to spend at least 20 hours, you know, processing my consciousness. Right. <laughs> so, but you, uh, you worked for a long time before you got published. I mean, it hasn't been, yes. it, it hasn't been like the the quick road. This is no, taking you some time.
1: Absolutely. Like When I started the MFA program, I was in nonfiction, and I was just starting to write the bones of this book. Yeah. So so that was 2000. Okay. And um, it was a really, really, really different book at that time. Um, And I think part of it was, like, who I was being influenced by, like, in terms of writing and reading and... um,
0: Who were you being influenced by back then?
1: Back then, it was... um, like Bernard Cooper, Amy Gerstler. and um, like the writing was super slippery and I think I think that it was beautiful and it was very sensual but it was not it was ambiguous like I could like wasn't I wasn't dishonest? telling the story yeah, yeah I couldn't be that honest yet I like,
0: feel like when you're dealing with really like radioactive emotional content sometimes you can dress it up in beautiful yes. language as a way of avoiding yes. the actual dirty truth (laughs) totally
1: totally and so uh, my first mentor was bernard cooper and he like started reading it and was like you need to write this all out chronologically because i was also already trying to like do different things with the form and he was like no your first exercise is to do it this way like just write it out chronologically as honestly as possible and that was my first exercise so i did that and you know by the end of the program I had a manuscript of like 200 pages, um, but it was still not the book that I have now. So there were many years where I would look at parts of it and try to do things with them. And then a lot of time where it just sat because I couldn't face it. Because there's something it to be really said, hard. there's something to be
0: said for incubation yeah, and patience. Oh, totally, totally. You sort of sick, you can save yourself from mistakes that way Absolutely. or putting out a book that like, you know, years down the road. Yes you have more problems with than you otherwise would. Yes.
1: That is something that I think about every day because I have people contacting me and saying like how the book has impacted them. And I'm like, thank God this book did not come out like 10 years ago when I thought it was sort of ready because it was a totally different book and it had a different tone. I was a different person then. It's not. Yeah. I'm happy with the book the way it is now.
0: Did you ever get like depressed along the way? Like, oh shit, I'm never going to make it. Yeah. Okay. Oh
1: God! Yeah, absolutely. Like I probably, I think like, maybe in two thousand and four or five, I just I started to do the whole like, oh maybe I should look for an agent and like, I you know I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't ready. Like the book was nowhere near ready, but I just felt like I had to do something to start pushing myself in that direction, and it was it wasn't time, right? You know,
0: right. So did you, and you did this with indie presses. So did you, Did you have an agent shop it or did you do it?
1: So I did originally have an agent and that was like based on the modern love essay that I had two years ago. Like, right. Like
0: in the New York you, times. Yeah.
1: You put a modern love column out there and then agents start calling you.
0: Right. That's one of the things they read. Yeah. It seems because yeah. I've heard that story before about it's a modern. A trip. It's a yeah. trip. I
1: had no idea. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, Oh, so now my advice to people is like, Oh, if you're going to try to do a modern love column already have the book written so that when the agent calls, you're like, here's the book, you yep. know? So that was not the situation I had. I was like, no, I don't have this book, but I have this other book. So, um, I was talking to a couple of agents, and then I signed with one, and she sent it out to all of the big places. Like, I cried when I first saw the list because I was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is going to be going out to these people." And um, overwhelmingly, I mean, obviously it, it was all no's, but it was like, "This is so beautiful. This is so complex. This is so dark. We don't know how we would sell this."
2: Yeah, I do. yeah.
1: There's no audience for this, or you're, or this person's an unknown. And so, if it's like somebody who's more well known, maybe we could sell this. But then, she's then
0: this room. pain would be relevant to the masses, right. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Pretty much, right? Yeah. That's what it comes down to. So, um, how did
0: you react to that?
1: It was it was pretty disheartening, but it wasn't like shocking to me. It was like, okay, what do I have to do now? Yeah. Um, and then I had this agent who I'm who's still courting me. So basically what happened was that um, Kevin saw the piece in the nervous breakdown mixtape, tape yeah. and then contacted me and said, Hey, are you working on so it? So I, I can take for credit that? for this. Absolutely. I give you all credit. There's <laughs> a mention t- yes. of it in my book. So um, yeah. So I gave it to him to look at without telling my agent because I was just like, well, it's getting nose everywhere. I'm just going to let him read it. And when he contacted me, and said, Hey, I really want to publish this. Then I cut ties with my agent. There was no reason I needed her. But in the meantime, I've been courted by this agent also since 2012. She won't like offer to represent me. And it's, it's until the book is done until the the book based on the modern love column. Like I have a draft of that.
0: That's that's conditional love. Yeah, I did. I don't like it. <laughs> no, I don't like it. Yeah.
1: So yeah. So um, no agent. No agent. No agent.
0: I bet. But you know, if you need, like, I think I feel like uh, just being on this show, you're going to have them just swarm you. <laughs> talk about being courted. And you know, it's like I've I've had this conversation many times. It's not necessarily the same world that it was 20 years right. ago with no. regard to representation, especially in indie, you know, indie press publishing. Yeah. Um. So do you feel like you've made
1: it? I feel like I'm happy about this book. Like I feel good about this book. And so that feels like an achievement for me to just know that it's out there the way that it is. Um, I'm stoked that I'll have another book out um, because that wasn't really what I had in mind originally. But the opportunity And then the next book is? It's called Hollywood Notebook. And it's going to come out from writ Large Press this fall. What is Espal. it?
2: What, I'm Wait, sorry. Like what can you oh, describe? Oh, yeah,
1: it? it's like you know. I've been describing it in this sort of loosey goosey way because we don't have like you know like the elevator pitch or something for this book. It's like I call it a prose poemish memoir, and basically, um, I when I first moved back from Olympia and was living in Hollywood by myself, I was writing a lot and I was writing this blog, and I took all of the content from that blog and edited it into something that's like, it's like 80 something chapters, but the chapters are like one page, two pages. And it's it sounds super, like my kind of book. Yeah. It's super prose poem ish, yeah. you know, there's some lists and it's, it, it's definitely not like a straight narrative at all. So it's, the voice is totally different from excavation.
0: Right. And so what was going on during those years? You're struggling as a writer. Yeah. I mean, that's
1: a big part of it. That's in there. That's a thread in there. But I had left Olympia and left my ex-boyfriend and moved to L.A. and was trying to figure out, like, I hadn't lived alone in a while, so I was trying to figure out, like, living alone, living in this part of the city. My parents were still over the hill, so, like, there were still some family ties there. And just, like, being 28 years old and, like, trying to figure my shit out and, like, where I was working and how... That impacted me. It was like just trying to figure things out. Yeah. And I'm somebody who believes that people don't just automatically become an adult at 18. Like, I think that actually people don't really become adults till they're like in their mid to late 20s. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I'm a
0: delayed
2: case.
1: <laughs> so to me, that was like I was growing up in Olympia and then like coming back to L.A. at 28. I felt like, oh, this is a, like I'm an adult now. Like, I really am on my own now in a different way than I ever was. And so a lot of the writing of that time is just trying to figure shit out.
0: And then what about um, Mark Ruffalo? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh I have to ask you about the Mark Ruffalo incident, (laughs) Griffith Park, Um, because you made a shift. Like you started uh, dating women like that. Like, did that happen in Olympia? You're with your partner as a woman. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious about this, like uh, in terms of like sexual identity or whatever, Like, how did that happen? When did it become apparent to you? Or was it always apparent? It was
1: always apparent like that. And that's something that I. So you're bi? Yeah. Well, I, for years I called myself bi and now I identify as queer. Like, clearly I've had this history of having these like serial monogamous relationships with men. Um, So that like, you know, somebody could say, oh, well, you're bisexual. And okay. But I call myself queer. Okay. That kind of fits more of, of my mindset and who I see myself So were as. you living
0: alive when you were with these guys in a way? Oh no, 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 no,
1: no. But what was unusual to me, even at the time was knowing that my attractions, I don't just like, I don't like have this attraction for, for guys. I had attractions for those particular guys, but it's not like I was ever like, Ooh, like you
0: men. didn't have like a Keanu Reeves. Post no. Right no, no, no. I like, did. <laughs> I still do. I kid. But you know, um, No, but from a young age. From a young age.
1: Yeah, like I my fantasies were about women. Okay. Um Always
0: that's I think that's a good litmus. Yeah. Like if what were you dreaming about? What were you fantasizing about? If it's like you know, if it's women then that's probably your primary interest.
1: Yeah, and I wrote about that a little bit in Excavation and that's showed up in some of my other essays too. It's like you know, 14, 15 years old, like I felt like maybe there was something wrong with fantasizing about women, but I couldn't figure out, like nobody came out and said that's wrong. Oh, well, sort of like I got caught messing around with one of my friends a few times and a friend who was a girl. And my mother definitely shamed me about that.
0: She did. Yeah. She caught you. Yeah. What were you guys doing? Yeah.
1: We were probably making out like in a closet or something like that's typically what we would do so how
0: how symbolic (laughs) in an actual closet we're actually in the closet mom totally okay
1: so um so yeah she shamed me about that so that's probably where i got that
0: okay and and like what about like you know having this sexual predator relationship when you were younger yeah i sometimes wonder about this for people who um switch teams or whatever the case like you know, if you have an abusive situation as a, as a child, or you have like some sort of really toxic, wrong, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. relationship right. with a man, and then you switch to women, like, is that what's driving it? Or is it always genetic? I don't think so. Do you know so. what I'm saying? Yeah, though?
1: I think it's going to differ from person to person because certainly there's same sex abuse within a family and, like, the person could still come out gay. You know, like, it's... Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it's going to be different person to person. They don't, but,
0: I mean, I guess it's just, like, it like, seems, like, at least, like, feasible to me that, like, if you grow up and, like, your dad is, like, a raging alcoholic who's, like, beating you mm-hmm. and you're a young girl, that, like, you're going to grow up not trusting men, not wanting anything to do with mm-hmm. men. And you're like, you know what? It's just safer with chicks. Hmm. Or yeah, not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't th- know. I
1: don't... I Yeah, I think that 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 doesn't allow for like all the complexities of, you know, what happens to us after that and the other relationships we have, like certainly those, uh, those family, the family stuff is important because it's your first model of relationship, but then stuff happens after that. You have different experiences and go through different things. And, you know, like I didn't feel comfortable telling people about my fantasies when I was 14 or 15, that like they involved women. That just, it totally felt unsafe to do that. So, you know, as a result, I think there have been, like, people that I've known since then who've been like, what? You know, like, they went to my wedding, you know, to my ex-husband, and then, like, a year later, I was like, okay, no, that's not happening anymore. It's all different now. You know? And so they had to, like, integrate that for themselves because they had known me since I was 14 or 15, and all they knew of was that I was with guys. right? But... I never felt like I could, you know, share those sorts of fantasies with them. I could talk about them, like talk about sex with guys with them, but it didn't feel safe to be able to talk about anything else. So that shifted when I went to Olympia because there are a lot of queers. There are a lot of um, like I was part of a bisexual group there. I started to feel safe. <laughs> I was on the board of directors. <laughs>
0: I was <Yeah>. the treasurer <laughs> of the bisexual co-op, right? Organic farm. Um, so that's okay. And then, like, just to, like because I mentioned it, I don't want listeners like wondering. But like the Mark Ruffalo thing, didn't he? Oh, right. Like, wasn't he one of the earliest witnesses of of your relationship yeah. with your now partner? Yes,
1: yes, it's true. So, so
0: you guys are up in Griffith Park.
1: Yeah, it was one of the places that like we would we would try to meet on Fridays because. She got off early on Fridays and I was free on Friday. So we would like find places to meet. And one day we were like, let's go to Griffith Park. Like, we're just going to go and like, you know, throw a blanket down and just hang out all day, you know, or as long as we can. So romantic. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't know who Mark Ruffalo was, but he walked by and, you know, uh, Sandy was just like, that's Mark Ruffalo. And I was like, (laughs) who's Mark Ruffalo? Because I don't know a lot of pop culture stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm kind He's of, of. He's dreaming. I, I, yeah, and
0: she brings a Did you ever, see did you ever see, did you ever too. see? did you ever see? You can count on me. That movie. No. God, it's so good. <laughs> I really, I kind of like really like fell in love with him in that movie. He's great. <laughs> he's great in the movie. Might be the best thing he's ever done. Wow. Yeah, you okay. should say it's with Laura Linney. It's a great okay. film. Kenneth Lonergan okay. wrote it. Okay. It's
1: good. Yeah. No. Sandy loves Mark Ruffalo. Like that's totally like the type of dude that she thinks is hot. So yeah. I think that it was like also like, ooh, there's Mark Ruffalo. But then it was also like, oh, like somebody is witnessing this. I mean, I don't know who he is. He doesn't know who we are. Did he
0: read the essay? You think? No. He I don't googles think so. himself. He googles. It. <laughs> Because the essay's called what? As Mark Ruffalo is my witness? Yes. He read it.
1: <laughs> I hope he did. Yeah.
0: You, I, I feel know. like you guys should connect at some point. <laughs> Email his agent. Um, well, that's cool. And then you have a kid. Yeah. You live in LA. Yeah. You're, you're becoming a doctor, like an official. Is that what you call no, it? No, no. You I'll become just a counselor? Be, yeah, therapist. therapist. A psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Right
1: now I'm an an intern.
0: And a published author. <laughs> It's a full life. Yeah. You feel good. Yeah. I Do you mean, have any other goals we need to know about?
1: you're crazy. But um, I don't know. I mean, I'm working on another
2: What manuscript. are you
1: working on? Um, it's a collection of essays that are like music themed. And a lot of the essays have been published, but there are some new essays. Like a mixtape Yeah, kind okay. of.
0: And then um, nonfiction is your thing?
1: Yeah, nonfiction is my thing. My Why? main thing. Um I don't know. I, feel I, don't, like I don't. I don't say it accusatorily. Yeah, too early. Yeah. I just, I'm
0: just curious. Like some people do, like they they, they tilt towards fiction. Some people, tilt. right?
1: Um, you know, I think that there's just something about like being able to put what's true for me out there and seeing the reaction that it gets.
0: Enough with these fictional characters. Let's talk about. <laughs> I,
1: but I see. I do. I do write fiction too, and the, you know, I can appreciate writing fiction. But there's, I don't know. Maybe it's. I think there must be something related to like therapy and my experience in therapy as a client and then my experience as a therapist seeing how people respond when you tell them like something is true for you personally or professionally like people respond to that it's like oh you've been through that I know something about that and I want to I feel like comfortable telling you now yeah um, and that's kind of the reaction that I get from people a lot is like they may not have gone through the same exact circumstance as what I write about in excavation but There's something there that touches them like they've had similar situations, whether it's like power differentials and relationships or, you know, just similar things have happened. And then they feel compelled to to talk about it. Yeah. And they don't have as much shame about it.
0: That's a relief for people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, hopefully some people listening might be experiencing like a bit of that. (laughs) Right? Maybe. You never know. Um, It's really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. you know, we've met before in yeah. person, but I've never really gotten a chance to sit down. And I've obviously read you on the Nervous Breakdown.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's particularly exciting to see your book roll out and to see you having the success because yeah, I was—I feel like I was a witness. Yes, yeah, like thanks. on the way up. You know? Yeah,
1: you were totally. I mean, that when I think about like everything that's happened, I feel like a lot of it was being on the Nervous Breakdown. Like that's where people started going, like noticing the themes of my work and becoming interested. Well, so thank you and here
0: you are well it was great <laughs> talking to you good
1: talking to you too
0: okay there you go that's Wendy C. Ortiz her book is called Excavation it's a memoir it's available now from Future Tense Books go get it go purchase it you can find Wendy online at wendyortiz.com she's on the Twitter and uh, her handle over there is Wendy or at Wendy C. Ortiz also don't forget to check out the, uh, the website for Future Tense Books great independent press up there in the Pacific Northwest, their website is futuretensebooks.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to join the TNB Book Club over at the thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar, and away you go into the world of literature. Uh, this program has its own app. Did you know that? It's got a, a free app, and it's the best way to listen. You just go to the uh, app store or the Amazon marketplace, wherever you can find apps, you can find the other people app. It's free. And uh, once you download it uh, to your device or whatever, uh, you have the most recent 50 shows waiting for you. If you want to stream the full archives, you can do that via the app. That's how you get at the full archives. That's the main way. You can also do it online, but you just get the app. You sign up for premium right there within the app, and then you can stream everything all 300 and something episodes. So uh, go get that app. It's free. And, uh, you know, big monologue, big mail day. I took some uh, some fire. I took some shrapnel. (laughs) It's good for me and uh, good for the show. So, uh, you know, I talked about this with Wendy, too, in today's uh, interview. You got to be careful what you say. Words can wound. And, you know, there's that fine line between being offensive and being uh, like, you know, nauseatingly politically correct doing the best I can going to try to improve always right trying to uh better myself and to try uh, and trying to keep this podcast from sucking I hope it hasn't been degenerating that's a fear you know as you go into like uh, you know the three hundreds you I would prefer that it would be getting better as opposed to getting increasingly worse (laughs) And there is the question always lurking in the back of my mind. Do I just give up the monologues? Just go straight to the interview. But then I feel like I'll piss off people who like the monologues. I don't know what to do. Please remember that Lavoisier was guillotined in the reign of terror and that Robert Penn Warren died of prostate cancer. That's it for now. Thanks to Wendy C. Ortiz. Thanks to Future Tense Books. Go get Excavation. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for uh, emailing me if you want to get at me that way. The uh, address is letters at other PPL.com. You can uh, write in with your responses to the program, or you can just tell me uh, a story. I don't care. I like getting email. So uh, that's it for today. That's the program. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'll be back again soon in just a few days with another episode. Uh, And hopefully I won't be repeating myself in that one or inserting myself into conversations in a way that feels uh, egocentric and annoying. I hiked the Appalachian Trail, by the way. (laughs)